Want to better your relationships, get confident asking for what you really want, and have more satisfying sex? Welcome to Intimate Interactions, a collection of juicy negotiations, informative explanations, sultry debriefings, and much more. Get early access and other goodies at patreon.com slash victorsalmon. Disclaimer. I apologize in advance if something I say discriminates against some folks. I'm open to being called in. Chances are six months from now, I'll look back aghast and see something horrifically problematic I'm not proud of. I'm certainly not perfect, but I'm trying to be mindful of the voices I choose to lift up and the perspectives that I encourage. Along that line, I'd like to acknowledge that this podcast is recorded on unceded traditional Coast Salish territory, specifically that of the Musqueam Nation. Welcome to another session of Intimate Interactions. I'm here with Oz Riley again, who uses they-them pronouns as a white, trans, non-binary, genderqueer, gender fuck of a human, to use their exact words. And we're here today to talk about how a person moves past scripts, writes their own scripts, and moves into a space of more authentic relationship with other people. How are you doing, Oz? Doing great. Thanks for having me back. Thank you for coming. So I noticed in our last session, we were talking about dating. (laughs) Yeah. And I asked you about how you related to dating and how you'd managed to move past scripts into a more authentic place for you. I mean, I think like I'm still learning to move past the scripts that exist and Mm -hmm. that'll probably be like a lifelong unlearning process, um, especially because scripts are so prevalent in like everything we do um, and, and just moving through the world. So I think uh, I had such a big reaction to the word dating, and uh, and I mentioned in this last podcast um, that I've like intentionally taken six months of no dating. Yeah. Um, and this is like for the first time since I started dating in my seventeen years of dating history. So it's it's been really interesting trying to like come back to that word as I'm uh, working towards opening myself up to the possibility of what does it mean to engage. Um, in meaningful intimate relationships um and like reopen myself to that possibility after taking some time away uh someone very candidly pointed out to me that like i'm always in some sort of relationship and i'm like yeah i guess that's like where relationship anarchy really comes into play for me and comes into effect but um having intentionally taken time away from like the focus of uh relationships that also tie into sex and intimacy and um that kind of veer more towards that traditional script of what we're all supposed to aim for. Yeah. I think that's actually the same point where I diverged from calling myself a non-hierarchical polyamorous person (laughs) into being like, no, I'm just a relationship anarchist. And I think the distinction there for me, because they're very similar categories, um, we should probably go into detail as to what those are for people listening. But before I distract myself, (laughs) I think the reason that I diverged on that point was the idea that in monogamous and in polyamorous relationships, there is this focus that a relationship that involves sex or quote-unquote romantic attachment, and and there's a reason I put that in quotes we can touch on later, Um, but a relationship that has romance or sex is somehow fundamentally more intimate than other relationships. And that idea is not one that works for me as a person who's kinky. I find a lot of kink scenes that I do with people. If someone ties me up and you know, consensually and (laughs) beats me up consensually. And it's a person I already feel close to. There's an intimacy in going on that hero's journey with someone of doing this thing that is scary to you, of doing this thing that's intense 
and of having them with you there for you the whole way and knowing that they've been in the same position you've been in, Mm -hmm. that they've experienced that journey, that they've done that kind of scene, that's highly intimate for me. It's intimate for me in a way that sex usually is not intimate for me. Interesting, Not that sex isn't very intimate because I find sex very intimate and I think... I have done scenes in BDSM that transcend any intimacy of the most intimate sex I've had, which is pretty intimate. Yeah, and I like, I I would say that for me as like someone who is deeply invested in emotional connection and emotional relationship, and um, this feeling of the word that comes up consistently inside of me is like tender, this tenderness that I wanna mm. that I that I hold for myself and like that I want to hold with other people. Mm-hmm. Um, that that tenderness can sometimes uh supersede in terms of intimacy or like it becomes this intimacy that intimacy that is can be attached to sex can be attached to romance but isn't necessarily or explicitly um yes and that that has like such a deep value in my life and so coming back to this idea of like i always have relationships regardless of yeah whether or not they're attached to this sexual and romantic endeavor um that there's oftentimes like a deep sense or a, a deep feeling of tenderness within me when I think of those relationships, when I, like, tender is the feeling that exists inside of me. That's wonderful. I've never heard the description of tenderness used like that. To me, I've often thought of it as intimacy, but I really like tenderness because I feel like tenderness gets at the feeling mm-hmm. where intimacy gets at the intellectual concept, which is definitely something I'm guilty of, over-intellectualizing this material. Yeah, I've uh, recently coined the term tendership, Tendership, um, and I'm still in the process of like really uh, kind of trying to feel out what the nuances of that label um, mean for me and for the types of relationships I hold. Um, the the words that I would use for different relationships would be like I have friendships, I have family, and mm-hmm. sometimes that's blood, and sometimes that's chosen. Mm-hmm. Um, I have heart people, and that's like another word that I coined like quite a while ago that is also kind of a vague definition that I'm working on. I'm like, sure. how do I, I've been thinking a lot about nomenclature and how to find words or how to create words that distinctly offer up this, um, this, a simple word to describe the complex feelings I have in any given moment. So yeah. heart people and tendership are two of those more, uh, recent nuanced terms that I'm starting to use and, and feel sure. into. I try and use umbrella terms, so I try and work within the existing nomenclature. Like, I would use intimate relationship to describe any relationship I have that's intimate. When I say intimate relationship, people may hear sex, and that may not be true, but that's also their assumption. I'm still using the word in a way that the word has pretty much always been used in, I think. Like, it means what it means, and if people make assumptions around that, that's not something I can control. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's where I come into challenges, is like... um, uh, with existing words right. and nomenclature it's like when you think about words that exist what are the assumptions that come alongside that and so when I get right. when I offer someone a word that they've not heard before they there's ask. usually more a question of like well what does that look like or what does that mean for you and I really have been enjoying those conversations I hear you and that's also an advantage I have with relationship anarchy people tend to ask me what I'm talking about instead of making assumptions although I find increasingly that's less and less true and people just assume that means I don't like having relationships which is quite the opposite mm-hmm Sorry, I didn't. didn't oh want to no, cut that's you off. that's a great, it's a great thought. Because um, when you say polyamorous, people have an idea of what you are now. Yeah, and I think I've, that's why I've always veered away from the term poly. Like at one point, um, when I was talking about my last long-term relationship, that kind of went from monogamous to non-monogamous. At one point, we were uh, near the end of our 
relationship using the term solo poly. And what that meant for me was uh, that like we were autonomous in our decision making mm-hmm. around the external relationships to the ones that we were having with each other. So like we yeah. would have our relationship, but the relationships that existed outside of our own that we were autonomous in making decisions and that we would hear each other out and that we would consider the other person's personal opinion and um, point of view and and feelings when making decisions, but ultimately the decision was to come d- back down to each of us as individuals. Choosing how to be in relationships and how to show up people. for each. Yeah. yeah. In other words, that your dyad was open to each of you having your own dyads and making your own choices of which dyads you'd have. Theoretically. And once again, like I think one wh- why I, I say theoretically is because so often I think we aspire to these things and there are challenges or uh, blocks along the way or missteps in communication. Um, mm-hmm. And um, at the time... Um, yeah, like I think I wasn't so clear in terms of how to engage with, like I didn't understand the difference between like a boundary and agreement and a rule. That is definitely something you should unpack because yeah. people listening are likely not going to. And that's great. Like I think it's so important to like learn these things because yes. they can help us be clearer in our relationships to ourselves and our relationships with others. Before we go any further with, you said boundary, rule, and what was the third one? Boundary, agreement, agreement, and rule. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I want to touch back on something I said on dyads. So the idea of a dyad is that two people are participating in a relationship with each other, and that's independent of exclusivity. So if I have a relationship with person A, and person A has a relationship with person B, but I'm not in a relationship with person B, you would call that two dyads. Mm-hmm. If I am in a relationship with six people, but individually with those six people... Each of those six relationships is a dyad. On the other hand, if I'm in a relationship with person A and person B who are in relationship with each other, that would be a triad because there are three people all in the same relationship as opposed to holding six parallel or or, um, independent relationships. I'm curious as to how you would like um, go into that a bit more if you like... Mm -hmm. if you and person A had a relationship and you and person B had a relationship and then person A and person B had a relationship with each other, but there was no, uh, but it wasn't necessarily that the three of you had a relationship together. Would you call that something different? Yes, that would definitely be three dyads. Three dyads. That would be complicated because you'd be in a relationship with a metamorph. Now, before we get to go any further, (laughs) before we go any further, it should be said that when you said, if I'm dating person A and B, two dyads, and person A and B have a relationship, there's no if about it. They're metamors by default. Yes. So the word metamor is a relationship you have, like a friendship or just an acquaintanceship even, it's, with a person who is dating one of your intimate partners. Yeah, That's it's kind I'm. of like the, the if you if it's a V, if you see the relationship as a V, sure. the metamor is like the invisible line between the yes. two people that you're dating. Yeah, and it's something that can be invisible. It's something that I find can work a couple of different ways and when you mix those styles of metamorphships it's problematic as fuck it causes all kinds of problems so mm. some people as metamors like myself i like meeting my metamors i like meeting all the people who are having sex with my sex partners or who are showering attention on the people i shower attention on or vice versa if there's um a, i don't want to say a mismatch but a a mix and match for example if i'm having sex with person a and person a is married it's nice to meet you know their significant other Usually, yeah. usually I tend to date femme presenting female body people, but that's not always true. And if I'm meeting a husband, for example, I like to be able to meet the husband. I've definitely been um, 
misunderstood to be infidelitous before because mm-hmm. I've dated someone who was married and had a husband, had a kid, and people just didn't seem to understand how that could be a happy, consensual, desired relationship. Yeah, and I think one of the other really important things around that for me is um, is no is wanting to know that everyone is genuinely okay with it. Doesn't mean you yes. have to be best friends. Doesn't mean you have, even have to be friends, but. Um, to be able to have those moments like as uh, re-entering dating and, and dating just like knowing that uh, because like we're all responsible for ourselves and we're also responsible for the relationships that we're in and so um, where I appreciate getting to meet and having different people that I date meet each other is like understanding that hey this is a real thing and like if you're not okay with it then like it almost feels like there's something hiding like I've been in relationships yeah. where um I where there was like the whole don't ask don't tell and it, something about that always felt really icky for me yeah and sure enough like down the road I was all, like okay I don't I'll do this because this is what you're asking of me and this is how you want to engage however if you ever ask me a question directly and I have to like answer I'm, I'm not going to lie to you yeah absolutely and then being asked a question about like oh when was the last time you had sex with like a man and I was like well yeah, like, That's a very specific question. <laughs> yeah, but was, I, suppose... I was dating like a female body sure. person, or like someone who was female at the time, sure. and um, so she was like, "Oh, like, well, when was the last time you actually had sex with a man?" Ha ha ha! Trying to make a joke of it, and I was like, "Well, actually, like four months ago." And, sure, and I take it that didn't go over no, as well. No, it as... didn't. That she she was very upset, and like I can understand it, and at the same time, it was like, well. And this is why I I refuse to go back to, like, the don't ask, don't tell policy. Is it just something that, like, does not sit well? And I think that that things like jealousy and uh, there's definitely challenges and that or can be challenges to navigating um, multiple relationships and the feelings that come up with that, whether it be scarcity or jealousy or the, the things that we're taught are, like, not good feelings to have. Oh, um, so frustrating. And so how do how do we come back to the, okay, this is uncomfortable. Uh, and you talked a little bit about this in the last podcast. How do I sit with that feeling um, and not make it about you doing emotional labor to fix what I'm feeling? How do I just acknowledge what I'm feeling in a way that doesn't put that labor on you, but also yeah. gives space for me to have those feelings yeah. and... For you to still be able to do what you need. And for it to not mean that you're quote-unquote bad. Exactly. That I, it's not that I'm bad because I'm having feelings of jealousy or feelings right. of upset. And it doesn't make you bad at polyamory to have those feelings. No, I don't think so. I, I And I don't think that we should be evaluating how quote-unquote good we are at relationships. I think there's a lot of judgment and shame there that's 100% unnecessary and in no way beneficial to anyone. Yeah. How is it ever beneficial to tell someone they're bad at poly or for that or matter? Or bad at anything. Right. It's like, what, what's the constructive piece that's around right. this? Yeah. How are you saying I can move forward with this? How are you saying I can improve as a partner and be a better human tomorrow? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It I just comes down agree. to tearing someone down. And I'm, and it's sad that I, that I ever was the kind of person that would have said things like that. I think ultimately it comes down to... I can't begrudge myself for being who I was then, but I can say I'm regretful that I've ever said something like that, and I aspire never to again. Yeah, definitely. And just be a supportive, constructive partner that just helps people move through things. 
and also like gives yourself like to give myself the permission to move through things not always gracefully yeah and also to give myself permission to opt out if i don't have the resources to give someone in that moment i can say like whoa it sounds like you're processing a lot of really strong feelings right now and i 100 percent empathize i've i feel jealousy i have felt it in the past it's not the same as anyone else's experience it's just my experience of jealousy however I can clearly see that you're in need of some support right now, and I wish I had more to give you, but Mm -hmm. these things are currently going on in my life. I'm not in a space where I have those resources to give, so I'm going to have to just ask to delay this. (laughs) Maybe we can talk about this in X amount of time. Well, I think the other piece is like, for me, learning about things like active and ongoing consent. Yeah. And like, that is a, like, I think at some point in time in this, the, traditional scripts that exist once you consent then it's like oh well you've you've consented prior consent Um, yeah and like prior consent is one thing but active and ongoing consent is another totally um and what you said just now about being able to opt out yeah um i very rarely in my life have like chosen to opt out because i'm i tend to be a pretty like headstrong person in terms of like i want to resolve this like i want everyone to walk away feeling peaceful and like good and there have been i can count on like less than one hand the number of times that I have had to walk away, um, and those situations, like deeply, just just like, and, and, and like, I think the hardest part for me is like, I really appreciate you even having the language to sit and be like, okay, well, you know, like I have X, Y, Z going on in my life. I like, I, I see you. I, I I hear this. I can't, I'm not resourced right now to support you through this. And I think that's a really kind thing to be able to do. And it's like literally the best thing in, everyone's interest if you can be clear with your capacity yeah totally. um and i know that in the past i have definitely struggled when i get to that breaking point and this comes back to that piece around boundaries agreements and rules yeah so in not being clear with my own boundaries i will push mm-hmm. past my own personal capacity yeah. and then when i get to that breaking point it becomes so much messier because totally. i am unable to then articulate when i can come back to something because i don't know when that will be um, I am unable to articulate like the gracefulness of, I hear you, I see you, and I I wish I could walk this with you. Mm-hmm. I don't think this is healthy for either of us right now. It's certainly not healthy for me, and I don't know how to engage with my best self. I need a timeout, and I don't know when I'll be able to revisit this. Trust that I will come back to this because that is inherently who I am as a person and who I have always been. Um, and and in not having, and, and I just recognized that I wish I had been able to say those things in those moments, that there were moments in the last several years of my life where like I was unable to articulate that. And I think things become more explosive, have had, had bec- like became explosive to a point because I was unable to articulate the reasons why I couldn't show up and yes. it had no it had nothing to do with not wanting to do the work. Yes. It literally had everything to do with burnout and having pushed repeatedly past my own <sighs> capacity and not being able to recognize my own boundaries. I completely empathize with what you were saying. Also, I just want to acknowledge that I was taking my phone out during that because my counselor was phoning me and I have an no. appointment in like two and a half hours. No worries. So I got the feeling that they were trying to cancel and that's why I had my phone out at all. But I also wanted to say I 100% empathize with what you were saying because I've definitely been completely burnt out not resourced and and just not having the self-awareness to know where my boundaries are not having the language to be able to make that clear delineation of i want to 
I'm not going to because that wouldn't serve me. And by extension, that's not going to serve our relationship. Mm-hmm. And I also espouse the belief that people are more important than relationships, yeah. that the individual people in the relationships are more important than relationships. I think when we, once you get off the script of monogamy, it's, it's much easier to see that people are more important to relationships. And I think if you take that approach, relationships become better valued. Yeah, for sure. And that's a really hard one for people to wrap their heads around, that when you start respecting the people in the relationship as individuals more, they have more, more capacity than, like, to what show the, up. More than what the form of that relationship needs to yes, be. Yes, more than our marriage is more important than us. Because think about that concept. <laughs> think about how how departed that concept is from in my heart, what I see as a kinder, humane place. And maybe that's a judgment as a non-monogamous person. And I'm very sorry if you're monogamous <laughs> and listening to this and you feel like it is a judgment. I just worry that when you prioritize a relationship over people, those people don't respect their own boundaries. They push through things that maybe sometimes it would have been better to just take a breather from. And they get to a space where there's resentment about that relationship because they haven't been respected as individuals. And I think this is a really great time to actually clarify um, what a boundary is, what an agreement is, what a rule is, or at least from my understanding of what I've learned and how I've tried to move forward in better ways. So, like, I understand a boundary is something that I can only place on myself. Yes. So saying that I have a boundary where I need you to show up for me, that's not a boundary. Yeah. That's like an ask or it's a a request. A boundary would be like, I don't want to like I can't engage with person X um so say I say I just I'm not in a place emotionally to interact with person X and uh that's that's my boundary um for whatever reason and I and I distinguish a boundary from a limit Mm -hmm. where a limit is like a very hard I cannot will not do this I'm going to react very negatively if in this situation Mm -hmm. boundaries can be very firm they can also be very gray, and I think it's important to make that clear when, when setting a boundary. Is this a boundary that is a more of a soft limit? Is this mm-hmm. like a boundary that's more of a hard limit? Because mm-hmm. in BDSM, we make that distinction between uh, a soft and a hard limit. Yeah. A soft limit being like, I am a no to this explicitly, and I'm open to having a conversation about it in a maybe possibly in some universe, whereas a hard limit is like... I'm a no to this explicitly, and I'm a no to having a conversation about why why that is, about how mm-hmm. that could change. I'm not interested in changing that limit. And that would be the hard limit. That's a hard limit. Yeah, and I think that's really interesting. So for me, if I wasn't able to engage with person X, like the way that people around me who know that boundary can uh, respect that boundary is if they know that person X is going to be at an event that I'm also interested in going, they can inform me. And then mm-hmm. I can make the active choice, choice. whether or not I want to put myself in that space. Yeah, um, I like it. And so it's not about, like, I can't interact with this person, therefore they ha- they can't be at this space because that's imposing a rule on someone else sure. and someone else's actions. All I can do is control my my own action, my own how I take up space. And sure. so, like, if I am unwilling or unable to engage in any certain mm-hmm. way, um, like, if I even go to a space and I, like, happen to run into that person, in that moment I have the choice to check in with my capacity Mm-hmm. Check in, like, can I be in this space but only engage on this side of the room? Or sure. can I be in this space and n- not n- interact with this person? Like, what are the different ways? Um, and it's all about, like, h- coming back to how I how I 
personally move through the world. It's not about asking other people to do things for me or yes. because of me. And and I've noticed that that language of boundaries, which is so reasonable, the notion of having a boundary is so important to mental health that it's kind of been co-opted by some people to say, I have a boundary that you not do X. Mm-hmm. And that's a really, in my opinion, inappropriate use of the term because all of a sudden it's exactly. gone that, into this rules. It's instead of it a boundary, that's actually a rule. And I think yeah. that language in that capacity is really important because... Totally. Uh, stating that you have a boundary around what someone else does is is counterintuitive to what a boundary is. And so it's yeah. understanding what is a rule, what is an agreement. Yeah. So a rule is something that you impose on someone else. An agreement is something that you make together. And I think where I veer away from like rules and I'm like, I don't feel comfortable with rules is because there's often that imposition. And it, the I, I, there's so much... Um, Weight in society to when we break our when we break rules, there are negative consequences, and I don't right. think consequences are a bad thing necessarily. Like, sure, that's 100%. how we learn, that's how we grow, and um, our actions do have consequences. That's how we understand the world. The world. <laughs> um, whereas an agreement, when we're talking about mutual relationships, is like two people coming together to negotiate something, and I think. I prefer agreements to rules because there's more space for that flexibility and for that negotiation. Mm -hmm. Um, And it ties back to this concept of ongoing, active, enthusiastic consent. Yes. And I also want to make a distinction between continuing consent and ongoing consent because they are very conflated. Mm. I tend in my consent classes to use the word ongoing to mean after the event is over and continuing to mean during the event is going on. So you have prior consent, which gets overemphasized in society to the point of this litigious adversarial loophole like, culture. You consented to this, Therefore, but yeah, that was like a year ago before I had the information right. of XYZ. Like. Sure. Yep. And, and also... Well, I got this person's quote unquote consent by getting prior consent. Therefore, everything that goes along with the script of what sex is in this one person's mind is therefore okay. Yeah. And it's like, well, you didn't negotiate any of that. And so ongoing being the, the thing. Ongoing being after you've done the thing and it's over, do you view it as a consensual interaction? Interesting. I think it's a useful tool for talking to people who've been accused of sexual assault. Because a lot of people that I've spoken with, because I do have those conversations and they're very emotionally expensive, um, but I think they're very valuable because in speaking with people who have been accused of sexual assault or rape about consent and speaking with those people as humans, you're afforded the chance to impact their worldview, which could literally impact many people's lives downstream of that event. Mm -hmm. That's why I do it, because I think I can genuinely make a difference and hopefully, hopefully that has been the case. Anyways... Being able to make a distinction between prior consent, which so many of those individuals seem to negotiate for, that's their goal. Once they get prior consent, everything after that is quote-unquote okay. Yeah. Versus continuing consent, yes, and this person didn't say no, therefore I had continuing consent. It's like, okay, well, fine. If you're going to argue your way around a a good faith interpretation of what both parties genuinely want to show up for, Mm -hmm. the best thing I can do is throw out this idea of future consent. When someone looks back do they perceive it as a consensual interaction? Will they genuinely think or feel or have the experience of being sexually assaulted by you? Yeah, and I think that comes back to um, the idea... Oh, gosh, my brain just went on a little tangent. Um, So I think someone... uh, It it comes back to this place around intention versus impact. Yes. And I took a ropes class um, a while ago, and one of the things that I very much appreciated about this ropes class... Um, was that the the folks teaching it said up front, you know, like, 
sometimes like when you engage in BDSM in any way, like sure. you are taking a risk. And so like there's being risk aware, there's, yeah. there's there all these different pieces around um, what you're choosing to engage in and with. Right. And the person who was leading the class was like, I know that things can go wrong when, when I'm engaging intimately or sexually or like with bondage with, with, with an intimate partner is it, it kind of like the gist. Um, and so I try to only engage with people that I can forgive if something was to go horribly wrong because I, and I, it comes back to like what I spoke about in the last podcast around, um, it, can I, like, how do I, um, Oh, my brain. My brain is definitely short-circuiting a little bit today. That's okay. Do you, uh, do you want me to give you some time to breathe? Because I had a couple of things I wanted to say. Yeah, sure. Go ahead. I'll, I'll take a moment to sit back. Shoot. What was I talking about? <laughs> I was, like, so engaged in, like, listening to you. Oh. I totally forgot what I was talking about. I was talking about communicating about ongoing stuff. Right. So the idea being not that there should necessarily be this colonially descended punitive system that mm. enforces ongoing consent. Because I think that was attached to what I was saying for a okay. lot of people, yeah. where a lot of people think, okay, well, if you've quote-unquote violated consent, because it's never, it's not usually that cut and dry. Sometimes it really is. Sometimes you're like, yeah, that person absolutely violated consent. But more often than not, I find there's ambiguity, and that's what brings a lot of the shame and, and guilt sometimes. Obviously, there are many mm -hmm. different reasons for that, and I'm on a very hot topic that's mm -hmm. very challenging to speak about, um, certainly in any neutral way, if that's possible. But I did want to say that there are more restorative justice frameworks that focus on self-improvement, that focus on healing, that focus on closure, that don't focus on punitive action. Harming someone is not, in my opinion, always the best way to get closure, to get healing. Knowing that someone is harmed won't necessarily change your reality. Knowing that, they've, that they're, for example, in jail, which, to be honest, when it comes to consent-related crimes, especially like sexual assault and rape, very rarely is the reality. Very rarely is going to court or using or accessing legal services even an option. Yeah. It's just, it's not necessarily going to get and people what they want. And our justice system is not set up in a framework that actually yes. gives anything, it gives anyone the, the, empowers anyone to feel better or to move yeah. beyond it. Um, it's very eye for an eye. It's very punitive. It's very focused on how can this wrong person be punished? And I think when you're talking about a social context crime, because mm -hmm. you know what? I'm going to start calling them that, social context <laughs> crimes. It's not about the action that was taken. It's about the social context the ap action happened in. It's a consent crime, if yeah. that makes sense. Those are not well moderated or, or managed by our justice system, except in the most egregious cases. In the rare cases that you have, say, stranger rape, for example. Yeah. Then if you have a witness, unfortunately, you need still a whole burden of you know, evidence, um, you can access that system. Now, should there be a burden of proof. I know there are going to be a lot of people screaming, absolutely, there must be a burden of proof. And to those people, I would say, yes, only if you're dealing with really serious consequences that are highly punitive. Like, we even have distinctions in our own justice system where legally, if it's a criminal issue and you're dealing with the chance of taking away someone's freedom and jailing them, then yes, there is the beyond a reasonable doubt standard, which is a reasonable standard and extremely hard to prove. However, if you're dealing with, for example, civil law, and again, I'm not a lawyer, not speaking from a place of expertise, but if you're dealing with civil law, all of a sudden it becomes balance of probability standard. 
now it isn't beyond a reasonable doubt. You don't have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that your neighbor destroyed your hedge trimmer. I mean, I think I would like to also circle this back around to um, like social context. So sure. we're, we're getting a little bit more into legal stuff, which Sorry. I think, no, it's, I think it's totally uh, an, an important conversation, but I think it's a way bigger can of worms than I have the capacity to unpack right That's now. That's totally fair. Because I recognize that like a lot of the times we we want to go like if we're if we're hurt if we're deeply wounded um i think the instinct is to go to those extremes that extreme place of like what about the justice system how does the justice system fail us why are we not going to the justice justice system why would we reach out to the justice system all of those pieces yeah uh when it comes down to this piece around um social context and that Mm -hmm. we are messy humans we are learning we are working I think most of us who are, I think, a part of like non-normative culture in any way, shape, or form to write new scripts and to be able to do that in a way that doesn't perpetuate further harm, like I think we really, like I try and come at things from the most compassionate place that I can. Like, okay, this thing that this person is doing is having an impact on me, but like I, like how do I understand that it's probably coming from a place of hurt? How can I understand like that person's actions as like, a, and how is that related back to something that I maybe said or did? And how do I look at that, my, my own personal experience through someone else's lens? And there's a great communication. Um, it's like, I can't even remember what it's called, but it's like, it's, it goes from this place of being able to take your own side, being able to sure, like take ad- someone else's side and then be able to like take, like take each other's sides. There's four steps to it, essentially. Oh, neat. Do you um, know what the framework's called? I would have to look that up and get back to okay, you. Okay, sure. Why don't you send it to me in an email or something, and I'll try and remember to put it in the in the links. Notes. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And so it's it's about this idea of coming to oneness, and it sounds like super hippie, and it kind of is. <laughs> um, but the the idea behind oneness is you can't get there without taking the time to move through the prior three steps. And when we try and rush those three steps, we will not authentically get to oneness. Yeah. And I think a lot of these, um, a lot of these hurts, the places and the actions that sort of lead us to a place of deep injury, they're incomprehensible. Mm-hmm. And I think to me, that's one of the harder steps is trying to comprehend how someone ever thought this behavior was okay and how in any world it seemed reasonable to take these steps that led to this deep injury. Yeah. And mm-hmm. on that note, we can transition to a different topic. <laughs> Great. Um, we were talking about metamorphship. <laughs> metamorphship to all of us. We have like, the best the conversations. And, yeah. Well, the whole point of the justice system was to talk about restorative justice, was yes. to talk about moving forward from a place of, of healing yeah. and closure and strength and oh, emphasizing yeah. the things we want as outcomes rather than emphasizing the process. Yeah. And so also coming back to this place around relationship and how yeah. do I recognize that uh, with boundaries, it means that like, I have a responsibility to do my the best that I can to not recreate harm or yes. recreate hurtful sure. situations. Um, and sometimes that means taking steps away from people. And so I can't control, like maybe I won't always be able to engage with someone directly. And the best sure. thing from that I perceive being able to do in the moment is mm-hmm. literally to disengage right? Um, for whatever reason. And, uh, and just because I'm disengaging from contact with a person, which, I, like I said, it's happened on less than one, less than the number of fingers I have on one hand, which for reference is five. Um, and sure. he, he, like th- this idea of like, okay, if I can't show up 
to conversation with this person or ongoing for whatever reason, how do I do the work to unpack and, and move forward in a better way? Yeah. And that's about the boundaries that I set for myself. That's about coming inside. That's about, and so as I think about dating and moving forward, um, there's this big question of like, what does it even mean to date? Yeah. And like, when in a world that is so full of scripts, how do I find people who are also doing the work to either write new scripts, who are willing to be curious and uh, like recognizing that there's going to be an element of risk in the same way that with like BDSM, there's that element of risk totally in writing new scripts and, and trying to find new ways of being with each other. There's that risk and that hurt and that experiencing hurt feels crappy. Yeah. Um, and I think it's fair to mention that element of risk is there in scripts too. It is, but like people are just so like, it's like, I know the, 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 the risks because the, the, the consequences are so much more laid out. People are like, Oh, well, if I take this risk, then this is the consequence. Well, only when they agree on (laughs) what those labels mean, because if someone says, Oh, I have this friend with benefits and that means very different things to the two of them (laughs) where one of them views it on a spectrum from fuck buddies to married. And the other person is like, well, it's its own distinct thing. I never expected us to move out of this category. You get into this distinction where one of them thinks they're on a relationship escalator because they're in a relationship, which is friends with benefits. And the other person does not even perceive that there's an escalator thing happening. That can lead to a lot of harm. Or that can, I think that can lead to a lot of hurt. I don't necessarily possibly uh, hurt. It can lead the harm aspect comes, I think from the assumptions being made, particularly in relationship to the scripts that exist. Yeah. Okay. How would you make the distinction between hurt and harm? Just out of curiosity. Hurt is that as I would define hurt as like a feeling that I have, whereas harm is something that I've done that has created uh, that has so there's a question of responsibility negatively. and impact. Yeah. Okay. So if someone causes the impact, but isn't responsible for the impact, it's hurt. <laughs> if someone causes the well, impact. not that not that the person in this hypothetical example necessarily caused the impact, but we're talking about an impact here where the two people came together negotiated poorly in other words said okay what are we we are friends with benefits awesome i'm happy living in that box and the two of them were in different boxes because they didn't agree on what the shape of friends with benefits box looked like yeah um or whether that box was on a conveyor belt slowly leading uphill to other boxes yeah that's a really good question and i'm not sure that i have an answer for it that's okay i would just convey hurt as like a feeling that someone has whereas harm usually there's like it's a the result of an action Interesting. So you would use hurt as a feeling and harm as the consequence of an action. Yeah. Okay. I can I can kind of understand that. For me, coming from the kink world, we have our own definitions of hurt and harm. Yeah. Where hurt typically means physically hurt, and harm typically means, I think, and I don't mean to answer for the entire community, because <laughs> obviously I have in no way the power to represent even much, much more than, well, any more than myself. Any more than yourself. Any more than yeah. myself. Um, that harm is more of a psychological heart, harm. And the reason I say that is because we often hear the distinction between hurt and harm, where hurt describes the result of a spanking and harm desol- describes mm. the result of abuse. Interesting. So even now in this conversation that we're having, yeah. it's about how we understand these words differently. Yeah. Like someone would say, oh, I don't harm my girlfriend or, or boyfriend or whoever, right? right? Whatever. I don't harm my partner. 
I'm, they may get hurt during a spanking or a whipping or something like that, but they're never harmed. That's mm. something that you'll hear in kink circles where people will talk about how they hurt each other, but mm. it's, a, it's a desired hurt. It's a consensual hurt. It's, it's, in a, it's a good hurt is sometimes what people will say. Interesting. Yeah, no, I think that the way we navigate things like hurt and harm, harm coming back for me to this like piece around responsibility of like, how do I, uh, and like you hear this, I think in, in around harm reduction. Yeah. So like we live in a world where it's messy and yeah, people are totally. going to get hurt. So how do we reduce the amount of harm? Yes. That we risk remediation and damage remediation. Yeah. It's less about trying to live in a perfect world where humans are animals that they quite frankly, in my opinion, aren't. <laughs> It's more about what can we do about the damage that's done objectively. Instead of looking at what we think should happen, let's look at what does happen and what we can do to be actually help promote closure and healing and all these good things. And what can we do to make our community environment inhospitable to that thing happening in future? It's still going to happen, but what can we do to minimize our culture's um, encouragement or facilitation or, um, or just apathy towards that thing happening? Yeah, very yeah. much so. Great. We are killing it. <laughs> All right. So let's see what we talked about. Oh, my God. So I wrote down the phrase, I get jealous, because I wanted to make sure that I mentioned that on the podcast. And all I heard in my head was, I, I, I work out. <laughs> I get jealous. Like, yeah, which is actually from a different um, from a different pop song. But I, I feel like jealousy involves a lot of work psychologically. Hmm. Yeah. And in a sense, it is like going doing a psychological workout because you process through feelings and you have to navigate these incredibly difficult waters. And it may not be a workout people want to do. Maybe it's you hate running, so... but you are on the treadmill for a very long time after having that feeling. And you're like, ah, oh, I hate this. Why would it just go away? Well, it's so funny because like when I think about my relationship to jealousy, mm-hmm. um, it comes, I think it like it, it surfaces more when I'm attached, when I, when I realize that I'm, I have an attachment Yes. Or an expectation. Oh my goodness. Expectations not being met is like the core of what upsets me. Yeah. Or like when I have an attachment to what something, what I thought something looked like. (sighs) And so it's that like revisiting those expectations. um, And like there are ways that I can, uh, and and it comes back to like prioritizing the person rather than the relationship. And there are some cases where I have been very good at this. And there are some cases where I have been (laughs) very not good at this. And it's just like interesting to notice the the different, like that it's a fluid spectrum within me. And like, I don't anticipate, like I anticipate that I will come up against it again and that I will, like I work really hard to try and um, not be attached to an outcome or to, uh, a title and I know that there will be times again in my present and future where um, you're, you're touching on something sorry go, go ahead oh yeah no, just that like I, I'm a balance of this emotional and logistical person and mm-hmm. when it comes down to it I think I am I think I'm more of a feelings person that statement itself is hilarious to me but like I am a more feelings based human sure and than what then, uh, uh, then like, I don't like when I make decisions, it's more, it's oftentimes more from a feeling based place that I struggle to find words to use to define Then like, the, so the, the big pieces inside of me, like the, there's like huge pieces inside of me that don't have words that it's just like these feelings. Um, mm-hmm. and I work really hard to like name those feelings. Uh, and I also recognize that like, 
sometimes the words just don't do justice. Yeah. And so I think some people will like look at a situation, they will analyze it, they will and they will make decisions based on the probability or the like uh, the the like limited probability essentially. Whereas when I make decisions, it's oftentimes I think from a place of uh, feeling and in any given moment I sit in this place of okay what is the range of best and worst case scenarios and how do I want to move forward recognizing that this action could have the best and worst of consequences sure and then am I willing to accept those consequences recognizing that I might not even know what some of those things are yet yeah and that gets back to like the messiness of informed consent and how sometimes you are as well informed as you can be and it's a high risk high reward situation and you have to accept the possible risks to choose to move forward with it yeah oh man i was saying something and i was like and now i'm so ensconced in what you're saying um we're talking about metamorph ships moving all the way back to there um and i talked about explicit metamorph ships i do really want to come back yeah, to this, let's do this this emotions based human thing because i think a lot more of us are more emotionally minded than we think we are and I think like I'm making all these logical decisions and you're like oh yeah, but it's really my emotions that are driving these things absolutely and I think there's a lot of research in split brain individuals to back that up as well like I think I think emotions are a primary driving factor in how we make decisions but hmm. but moving quickly through metamorphships as I like <laughs> let's just knock this one off and then we'll go back to topics For sure. um I, so I defined, divided metamorphships into the explicit and non-explicit type. Mm-hmm. There's like the type of metamorphship where you're like, oh, you're married to this person I'm, I'm sleeping with. This person is amazing, by the way. I like really enjoy who they are as a human being. And like they actually like I'm 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 on their team. I'm very excited to see them doing their thing in life. And you kind of get this moment where you're both like, yeah, we both love the same person. Or possibly it's not like that. Possibly you're just both sleeping with the same person and there isn't necessarily as much attachment to who a a person is. Yeah, it could just be, yeah, I'm one of this person's casual sex partners. And you can still meet, you know, their significant other if if there's a reason that you're quote unquote not as significant. Mm -hmm. Or, I mean, I, I again tend to consider my intimate partners intimate partners and make less of a decision about significance or comparison of hierarchy mm-hmm. because I'm a non-hierarchical human in that regard. I guess the other question for me is like with mm-hmm. relationship fluidity yeah. um, and relationship anarchy is not always having those mm-hmm. labels and like coming back to my like long distance ambiguous amorphous relationships that like come and go. It's like I... I I've acquired, like, I don't, I'm going to use the word acquire, but like that also doesn't feel right. It's like this kind of funny thing, but like, um, I've developed so many relationships that have been able to evolve and take different forms over the years. And so coming back to nomenclature and like what a heart person is versus what a tendership is and, um, and how sometimes there's overlap between the two and, and one can become another and slip back into it and, and all these different ways of being like, I'm I'm curious to get like feedback on as someone who's starting to re-engage with dating and sexual and romantic intimacy or that like that is my my hope and my aspiration um is to like reopen those doors for myself but like how do I do that with new people and inform them so they can make cons- like informed consensual decisions around how they want to engage with me like what is important for someone else to know 
And how am I supposed to know what's important? Because it's going to vary from person to person. Totally. One person might be like, I just need to know if you have any other sexual partners and how you're like how you're engaging with them with regards to safety and or risk. Um, mm-hmm. Because for me, my baseline is knowing like what kind of sexual risk I'm taking. But like, I actually have written a primer about this. Yeah. I literally wrote my own relationship primer to be like, here are the things you should probably know about non-monogamy. Here is how I practice non-monogamy. Here are my relationship values that inform how I act in terms of my non-monogamy. And basically, like, all of the basics. And then I just linked all of my test results um, in that primer so that people can literally go and see how frequently I get, you know, checked just to make sure that I'm yeah. healthy. And, and then more importantly than, quote-unquote, healthy, um, that I'm very aware of what the risk factors are for my partners. And I'm, I'm always trying to be really careful to destigmatize STIs. Mm-hmm. And in the same breath, I now feel like I need to mention that I actually test negative for all of these things because I worry people are going to think that that's informed from a place of um, agenda or motivation that I want to destigmatize STIs mm-hmm. because... But I think that this you know. still also follows along the a script of a dominant narrative around how sexual intimacy is like the main form of risk when you're yeah. engaging in relationships. And, and so, yeah, totally. Yeah, as someone who's like identifies as a relationship anarchist, mm-hmm. it's like, okay, well, what what do my partners need to know in terms of emotional risk totally. and investment and and the there's this fine balance, I think, between processing and over-processing. I definitely ask the question, yeah. how, do you, how do you form attachment? And I ask the follow-up question, do you find that sex tends to form attachment for you or whether sex is its own independent thing <coughs> of attachment you might form? Yeah. And those are questions I do my best to ask before having um, a sexual experience with someone. Just so oh, I I'm can gonna, be... like put those in my pocket and like totally use them. You're certainly welcome to. Um, but it's it's a really valuable thing to ask, like, how does sex relate to emotional attachment for you before you have sex? Because that's a legitimate risk. That is a really great question to ask, and I'm so glad that you've shared that with me. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> You're very welcome. Yeah. So, yeah, so checking out um, what a person's risk is to STIs is, like, its own thing. I There's also the fact that it's important to acknowledge, no matter how much we want to live in a world where scripts and, and especially gendered scripts don't play a role in these things... Mm. That doesn't mean we should be ignorant of the context that we still live in a world where these scripts and gendered scripts are playing a role in these things, especially for in especially we need to be ultra aware of other people that haven't expressly deconstructed them because I've definitely had experiences with you know cis women heterosexual cis women or at least cis women that were willing to have sex with me or interested in having sex with me i hate the term willing it's like so it's cringy I'm wi- no it's yeah, awful yeah. It's, it's awful it's not like who are you interested are, in taking yes, part in some fun sexy exchange whatever that might look like exactly yeah so instead of being like you are permitted to take the following <laughs> actions to be like i'm really interested and and excited to do the following things with you or yeah, yeah. The difference between permission. Man, that word is so loaded. Oh. Let's not let's not get off on that. That's <laughs> another awful. day, another day. Also, if I use the word man colloquially, just let me know if that's actually like offensive, if you find that that's misgendering. You it's can... just funny because I've noticed you say it a few times, and I think it's one of those words such as like. We just yeah. like insert it in sentences when we're rambling, and that's part of human speech. So, yeah. And if it's something that, that bothers you specifically, no, let me know, and I will make an effort not to do it with you. It's okay. Okay, cool. Because, um, you know, eventually I am going to be in the company of individuals for whom that is. Oh, yeah. And upsetting. if you want to practice with me, then that's totally fine. I would enjoy you practicing. We can. And 
I tend to, and, and maybe this is more of a question, but okay. I do tend to perceive your gender expression as being primarily mask or more mask. Mm-hmm. Is that is that something that you think should impact the types of descriptors I tend to reserve for mask individuals? I would prefer that they didn't, actually. Wonderful. So, yeah. In which case, I will absolutely practice with you. Brilliant. Thank you. So Negotiating. Have, yes. And Fantastic. We have, we have different gifts that we offer each other. It's and true. It's never a question of, like, what is my plus minus in this relationship? I think it's more a question of, like, am I expressing I'm grateful for the gifts I'm receiving? And am I open to giving the gifts I have to give? Yeah. And if, oh, that's so beautiful. If not, are there reasons for that? And then mm. what gifts am I willing, willing, coming back to that word, what gifts am I enthusiastically wanting to share? You're right. Versus and, reserving. Versus reserving. And also coming back to like mutual consent is like, what are you, what are you interested in receiving? Like, so cause I have so many gifts and I'm like, I want to, I want to give you this thing. And some sure. people are like, I have no interest. In that I have thing. no interest in this thing. And totally. I'm like, but I have this thing and I want to give it to you. And it's like, well, that thing isn't going to make me happy. It's like, oh. Um, and someone once said to me, like, uh, oh, what is it? Like, the absence, the m- missing is like, uh, the feeling of missing is um, having love and having nowhere for it to go. Oh. Like, the action of, like, how you want to give love to someone and if you want to give it to someone but they're not there or they don't want to be receiving of it, well, that's like, fascinating. Having like love. Are it. you talking about having love for one specific individual? Having love for... Or just like, I'm a person that has a lot of love to give kind of thing. I'm a person. I have a lot of love. Here are the ways in which I like to show my love. Uh, Total. Here oh are my the God. people that I want to give so this important. love to. Person Z doesn't want to receive this kind of love from me. Oh, I'm sad. Like... Yeah. Yeah, and we went over... We went over all the different ways to say no on one of the previous <laughs> podcasts, but but even just having that, I need to build more trust before I'm willing to consider that, or these other other ways of saying I'm a no to that, but I'm yeah. yes to you. Or like, those... I think another, it's like, I'm just not interested in receiving that from you. Totally. And like, it, there's like a piece of ego, I think, that goes up, like, what? But, but why not? Just like, does that mean you think I'm a bad person? Or it's like, no, sure. like maybe for, for whatever reason, and maybe... You don't want to share the reason, and that's okay, yeah, too. totally. It's like, a it's not. And then particularly as, like, a mask person who interacts a lot with them presenting people, like, coming, trying to get to a place, and this is something I'm actively working on, is, like, mm-hmm. if you offer me something, how do I not, like, you? how do I just accept it for what it is and not need yeah. an explanation that there's no judgment or, there there's no evaluation it's or like, just... and maybe there is but also like femme folks have been doing this labor for so long and, oh yeah um as like you know i threw up a photo on my instagram recently of like me 12 years ago and i oh, look like a girl like i well, yeah. i look like a girl sure. and like for the majority like the two first two-thirds of my life you know socialized treated as a female as like a woman and like regardless of my identity or any of those things and and to recognize that, like, as much as those things inform how I move through the world and, like, the different ways in which I perceive myself, especially people who've only known me in the last five years, they don't see me that way. They don't treat me that way. They might not understand that, like, some of the ways in which I'm still trying to actively reclaim or, or take up space in the world is a direct result of how I was treated for the first 20 some years of my life and so mm. it's like coming back to this place of like okay so you're going to offer me this thing how do I accept it as a gift how do I not need to justify or defi- or like defend defend or... and 
expensive. Also, and and that comes back to like scarcity of this feeling of like, oh my gosh, if this one person thinks I'm a terrible person, or I must be a terrible. person. If this one person isn't interesting to have sex with me, then maybe or, no one's interested in having sex with me. Yeah, and like, and and I'll just even remove sex from that equation. Sure. Like, if this person is not interested in being my friend. Like, yeah. maybe I'm not worthy of friendship. And it's like, no, that's right. not true. And, like, maybe this person doesn't want to... Maybe this person will share as much as they can about what that means for them. Um, and maybe they won't want any explanation or rebuttal from me. And as someone who occupies, like, male privilege, um, yeah. mask privilege in a lot of ways, it's like, okay, like, this is the current reality of what we're sitting in. And... Um, and I think that can be really challenging as someone who more often than not would prefer to have a, an ongoing dialogue where both people work together to understand each other's perspectives. Um, but also the patriarchy is ever present and um, sometimes shifting those structures re requires looking at the power that I currently have and accepting that someone else's truth is if they're willing to share that with me is like more than enough. Yeah. I think that that's great. Um, do you want to unpack just a tiny bit mm -hmm. what you mean just for the people that are listening that maybe don't, that aren't quite on board with understanding yeah, for sure. the notion of power structures in society and patriarchy and how that specifically relates um, to, to me, as I'm saying this, I'm like, I feel like this <laughs> is asking you to really spell it out, but how does patriarchy relate to you're not accepting a person's answer as enough and being entitled or demanding an explanation for why a femme presenting human is a no to something or even i'll take it one step further and sure. and say like the need to justify or feel like i am i am heard mm -hmm. um so like in a patriarchal society men have traditionally been the voices that are heard and listened to and um, as someone who regardless of whether or not I want to embody some of those scripts around masculinity yeah. around um, like in dating dynamics between um, myself and like femme or female people um, like traditionally women have to fight much harder women non-binary femme folk um, have to fight much harder for their voices to be heard and their words to be respected and just taken at face value. Whereas like someone who is mask male socialized in those ways, particularly, or like takes up space as a man in the world, like you can pretty much walk into a room and trust that whatever you say will be taken at face value mm -hmm. or walk into a doctor's office. And so that also like leads to this feeling of entitlement. And sure. Um, I think, being able to step back and be like, okay, how has, how, it's not actually about me in this moment. It's about something bigger than me. It's about something that I represent, whether or not I want to represent this. I'm so glad that you touched on that. It's really similar for me in terms of um, having white passing privilege. It, I definitely acknowledge that I have that. And it's different from white privilege. But even just, for example, being a mask presenting human, being someone assigned male at birth who has grown into being at least comfortable with presenting as a man, even though there are definitely ways mm -hmm. in which I don't do that. But suffice it to say, no, I kind of got bullied all through high school for gender stuff. But regardless, yeah, I like, still oh. occupy a lot of privilege that's associated with that. And there still is the context that I'm a dangerous, a potentially dangerous person just based on the fact that I'm bigger than another human being. Just being bigger or 
traditionally being listened to more. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of privilege that comes with that. And if a woman says that she's, um, like, it would be inappropriate for me to make my first meeting with a woman at my own personal residence. Mm-hmm. And it would be specifically inappropriate because I'm asking that person to engage in a very high-risk behavior in society. Mm-hmm. Whether or not it's high-risk in this one particular case doesn't matter. And in fact, I think I would be behaving in a way that's really socially irresponsible if I encouraged that type of meeting. So even when I've been really interested in partners sexually, I'm always really cautious to make sure our first meeting is a public coffee meeting kind of deal, even if they're even if they mention, and this hasn't always been the case, but even if they mention or voice they're interested in meeting at my personal residence for a first kinky meeting, mm-hmm. because that's not that uncommon in the kink scene. Often there's this idea, I'm so far out in left field as I explore this new thing called BDSM, what's meeting a person at their house? How is that more dangerous than BDSM? Yeah. But it is much, much, much more dangerous. And if you don't have a public location where you can do kink, look for the parties. They're almost certainly out there. If they're not out there in your city, they're out there in the next biggest city and like the bigger city that you're closest to. Yeah. And so coming back to this place of Mm -hmm. um, the patriarchy being so prevalent in terms of the dominant narratives and coming back to these scripts. And so um, as someone who I don't identify as male, not like I don't identify as a man. Sure. Sometimes, oftentimes that is how the world will perceive me. So yes, Regardless of how I identify, I re- represent something that is bigger than me. And in this historical power struggle where, uh, like, once again, if we come back to a binary, women are on the bottom and men are on top, mm-hmm. like, figuratively and literally, um, what does it mean for me to, like, try and remove myself from my ego or my need to be liked? And how do I, how do I take a step back and look at myself from the outside and be like, okay, maybe in this moment... Like, this isn't actually about me. And if what this other person needs is to just, like, say this and leave. Wow, I'm going to have to sit with a lot of uncomfortable feelings. Is that the worst of it? Because on the flip side, uh, women, non-binary femme folk, have had to traditionally sit with a lot more than discomfort. Like, actual unsafety. um, and, And so learning to kind of tease apart, like, what is uncomfortable and what is unsafe. Yeah, and also, if you have to deal with a little bit of uncomfort, is that necessarily worse than making a whole room full of femme folks really uncomfortable with what you just said? Yeah. Like, you can do the emotional labor of being like, I'm a little uncomfortable, everyone saw that. Or you can go to a really defensive place and say, I'm going to say something that might make this person feel unsafe and by proxy might make every femme person in this room feel unsafe. (laughs) Like this, one of those is definitely mathematically the better option yeah. and socially the better option if you ever plan on trying yeah. to approach any of the other femme folks that are currently present. Totally. And like engaging safely means being more mindful of like what my triggers are and I won't always know what they are. So sure. I think like in the moments where I don't necessarily act in alignment with like my best self, mm-hmm. the moments where I am navigating triggers that I didn't expect. Yeah, those those buried landmines is yeah, sometimes what they're like, called. In okay, there's like big feelings and um, and how do I how do I navigate that respectfully? And sometimes I can catch that feeling and take a step back. In which case, I'm like, phew, I can go away and do the work and come back and or whatever. And, uh, there and is sometimes that... I can't because yeah. like I'm just too activated and yeah. um, and recognizing that when I'm in those activated spaces, I am actually unsafe. Like, 
I'm unsafe like for myself and, and I'm unsafe for other like, people. For others. Like I can, that's where I will cause the most harm is when I'm feeling right. activated. And so if I'm, if I recognize that I'm feeling activated, what do I need to do to like bring myself back to a space where I can engage more ethically? Yeah. I love that. Absolutely. And I think a lot of people, especially myself and possibly other mask folks, and possibly other humans just in general have that experience of being really activated by a past experience and doing something. And often it just kind of gets this blanket term of anger applied to it. Hmm. And then there's a lot of shame around quote unquote being angry. And one of the things I'm teasing apart in counseling right now is the difference between healthy anger uh-huh. and, and advocating for myself in a reasonable fashion versus always being ashamed of advocating for myself, oh which is something gosh. I struggle with a lot. Can, I, can we talk about anger for a second? Let's talk about anger for a second. Absolutely. <clears throat> so anger is something that's really interesting. Um, as someone who is raised and socialized female who grew up in a home uh, with like a physically violent and abusive uh, father um, in like early childhood... Um, and then, um, and, and just like the ways and an emotionally manipulative stepfather in, in later years, not towards me, but towards my mother. So in the ways that I witnessed, um, intimate partner violence and, um, and so the ways in which anger was expressed by the men in my family versus the women in my family, uh, recognizing that I didn't have any non-binary people in my family, um, and, and how I internalized as a young, like, socialized woman, uh, what what I was allowed with anger and then what was not allowed. And how I expressed anger as a young person uh, versus as I moved through my late teens and into my early 20s. Um, and then when I started to physically transition, being hyper aware of what, if I expressed anger, what that would be perceived as if I was being if I was being passed as male, if people saw me and were like, "You are a man, you are sure. expressing anger," that yeah. means you are violent. Like that was the only ex- those were the only expressions of anger that I grew up with were expressions sure. that were inherently violent. And so, or even just I, being afraid of it. Even if you meet a totally random stranger that didn't necessarily grow through that lens, yeah. if, a, if a male, if like a mask presenting person is is physically angry, by which I mean large anger, like yelling or big gestures, or you can see it in their face. When you see an angry mask presenting person, even if they aren't necessarily violent or have a history of violence, there's the risk they may be one of those people who is violent. And as we looked at statistics on one of the previous episodes, and it was Mm -hmm. like 55% of female-bodied fatalities of all homicides were intimate partner violence. Mm -hmm. 55%. That is most... That means if you are going to be murdered, you are most likely going to be murdered by someone who claims to love you or who does love you and murders you anyway. And yeah, that's a whole can of worms. Um, It's it's endemic in our society, the amount of cis violence, like inter-partner. Yeah, Yeah. and particularly as someone who started taking testosterone like in my Mm -hmm. mid-20s, a lot of the reading I had done beforehand were like, you may experience mood swings and rage, like essentially testosterone rage. And right. I was like, oh crap, like how, like how do I navigate that? How do I negotiate that? And I think for many, many years, I just suppressed all things angry. Yeah. And, um, and so I much more easily feel things like sadness, like, and, uh, mm-hmm. and, hurt then I I do feel anger and 
um, over this last year, I have stepped into the question of how do I, how do I allow myself to feel anger in ways that are nonviolent? Because I think anger can be a really powerful and positive emotion. Um, and I think it's necessary in a lot of ways. And so I've undergone this journey of like, as a trans mask, non-binary gender, fucky human, how do I embody anger? Uh, how do I reclaim anger? Because I think there's a lot of shit to be angry about. And then what are the different ways and what are the spaces that are safe for me to express my anger in? And that's been like a really exciting part of my last, my last year. I'm glad you see it as exciting because for me, it's terrifying. Also, I feel like. (laughs) I feel like not being able to express anger is literally killing me. Like, I think the stress and the tension that I'm absorbing in my body by not ever really displaying my anger is actively really bad for my health. And I think it comes out in other ways. It comes out in, like, really... It can come out in really toxic other ways. Oh, I'm like if extremely careful. You don't express care- anger. How yes. does it? How does it come out? Because emotions don't go away. So right. if it's not coming out in this way, yes. What are the ways that it's? So when you say coming out, <laughs> I would be very mindful of that because for me, it goes inward. It ends up being extreme. It ends up representing itself as self-destructive um, mm-hmm. thoughts. It ends up presenting itself as. So when where when you don't listen to the anger, when you don't let yes. let the anger come out, where does it go? What does it transform? How does that how does that manifest it in you? It sticks in my in my internal narrative. It mm-hmm. sticks in my thought process, and it's kind of like if you think about a horror movie and you think about some sort of demonic like like victim that's been serially abused, screaming from one side of a door like clawing at the wood until their fingernails make marks in the wood. That is essentially what is happening inside my mind when I feel angry and I'm not able to express it. And how does that impact your intimate relationships? It impacts them in surprisingly not significant ways. Really? Yeah, I've been extreme. I've made done so much work on producing a me that treats others as well as possible with reckless disregard to how I treat myself. Yeah, but I would also like to ask, like, for you to go deeper, because I think that when we have those moments of, um, like, internalizing, you said it yourself, like, self-sabotage. Oh, totally. And that self-sabotage comes out in terms of how we treat our intimate partners and the people that we care about in our lives. Um, Well, I certainly don't show up as well as I could have if I were in better emotional health. I think that could be said to be one way that it impacts my partners. And my partners often... um, I should be careful about using the word often, but mm-hmm. I definitely have partners who notice um, or have expressed. Mm, no, possibly, maybe? possibly, maybe huh. who have expressed that. Uh, well, I mean, it's just it's kind of in the way that you sit with depression or any mental illness. Um, not that depression necessarily has to be for all people, but for me, I think it is. And I think for me, that's the way that it impacts others: is the way that I internalize anger as not towards the outside world and present a very rational objective um but i aspire emotionally intelligent Mm -hmm. as well um facade for everyone for lack of a better term term i very much present this oh i'm being faced with a situation that's really unfair and it's almost always unfairness that is i think the only way that i'm comfortable um, expressing 
a, a gentle form of anger is when I've been treated very unfairly, especially in a framework that is very colonial, where there is an absolute sense of fairness or a sense of absolutism, like doing business. Mm-hmm. I've been a business owner before. So when businesses treat me really poorly, I will go on Yelp and I will leave that review. <laughs> um, so I guess you could say that is one way in which I feel. I like that you're like, snerd. Um, but that is one way I feel comfortable expressing anger. And I need to develop more healthy ways and find healthy spaces. Yeah. And I think like for me, when it comes to um, like intimate partner and like the anger stuff that comes up there is like learning to sit with that anger and understand that it's trying to tell me something. Totally. Um, what is it trying to tell me? Um, See, I do that without the sitting with. <laughs> I will try and understand what the anger is trying to tell me and not deal with the anger. So I will move so quickly through, oh, I'm feeling angry. What am I really feeling? There's this denial that that anger is valid in and of itself, and it yeah, is. Yeah, and I think that that can be really harmful to yourself. Absolutely. Like, and, and so coming to this place of, um, oh, this thing, oh, my brain just like, <laughs> once again, short-circuiting. Um but allowing that to be valid. So coming back to this communication yeah. style around oneness, if you skip okay. steps one through three, mm-hmm. that oneness is not going to be whole or complete or holi- it's not going to be holistic. It's not going to be sure. the thing that like moves you forward in a better way. It's the band-aid solution. It's like the rush yeah. solution. So like, and I like, I know that I personally really struggle uh, sometimes with this feeling of urgency and immediacy and like, I need this now. Like I need to already be here. I already, and it's a dissatisfaction with where you are in your journey, a dissatisfaction with where I am in my journey or like, um, a, a lack of acceptance of, uh, like, okay. Like if I'm feeling angry, like maybe, maybe I'm just angry. Um, and, and so often I want to that like, I'll feel that like spark of anger and all of a sudden it'll be like, Oh, but I'm really sad about this or I'm really hurt about, by the, like, and, um, really just like not trying to justify or away that anger, just being able to be like, I'm angry right I'm now. Angry. It's, like, it's hard for me to even say those words. I tend to say I'm frustrated or I'm irritated or, yeah. you know, I'm annoyed. I find ways of getting away from anger so that I have distance from the shame that comes with being angry as a man. Yeah. Because I think I do carry a lot of shame about anger, but not not exclusively because I'm a man, but definitely in part yeah, as I, a person who presents mask. Yeah, and for me, I think that my fear around being perceived as angry is that it will inherently be perceived as violent. Yeah. And so I I'm doing a lot of work in trying to uncouple those things and recognizing that, um, like how do I how do I learn to express anger in a way that isn't violent, and mm-hmm. what does that mean, or what does that look like? What are the ways that that can I never had any healthy models for anger. No, neither did I. I just, my parents screaming at each other, like, all the time, till early morning. Like, it was a very common occurrence. And that doesn't give you the healthiest models for anger. Like, you can think about how long a shouting match has to go on to get to the early morning if it starts in the evening. And it's like, sometimes they were yelling for a very long time. And that's just a hallmark of unresolved anger. And I just remember feeling... Yeah, actually, I think you nailed it. That's that's really good. The notion that anger can be perceived as violent. Because for me, my father was never violent when he was angry, but sometimes my mother was. And I definitely internalized the idea that anger either gets resolved quickly or does tend to escalate to violence. Mm-hmm. That there is this... There's a lot of fear behind unresolved anger. So yeah, there's anxiety sure. to get that anger resolved as soon as possible. 
And there's also shame around not feeling like I'm quote unquote evolved or not feeling like I'm responsible or mature or all of these other words that we use to shame people around their feelings. Yeah. And feelings are, are just what they are. Like feelings are big. Yeah. And, and they're valid where they're they are. Valid where Just they because are. you're not where you want to be with a feeling or you're having a reaction, that's okay. Mm-hmm. And just giving yourself space to have those feelings can be really hard. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, we came a long way from non-explicit metamors, but all, <laughs> all legitimate, very good conversations. I liked what you said about tenderness and tenderships and heart people. And I think... I think I try, as I said before, to sort of... Is it okay if I switch conversation topics? Yeah, please. And just move away from anger? We're Not ready that to... No, we're ready to move back into nomenclature. Yay. Um, I also wanted to do some definitions, because we probably should have done these at the beginning. I'll probably put in a quick definition at the beginning just to help people out, but um, the, differ- the distinction between polyamory, like having multiple people that you love, which yeah. doesn't necessarily need to be sexual... Yeah, um, and polyamory I think still comes with its own set of scripts, which is part of why I've all like I've yes. never like not never. It's part of why I think I have veered away from yes. and not felt a lot of resonance with. Yeah, like before I came across the term relationship anarchy, like I would typically identify as non-monogamous more so than polyamorous because sure. which is the umbrella term, which is the umbrella term. So. And I, and I do the yeah. same thing. I often identify as non-monogamous rather than polyamorous because I feel like it has this very swingersy context, mm-hmm. and which is ironic because most swingers, if not all of them, most of the ones that I know for sure, identify as monogamous, not polyamorous, mm. um, because they don't love more than one person. Yeah, they make it very very clear that they have casual sex with multiple people, but they actually only love one person. Thus, the difference between swingers and polyamory. Yeah, and but also those things get often conflated when the dominant narrative still revolves around this idea of monogamy, and so. Right. That they have their their nesting or anchor or primary partner. Yeah. I'm okay with nesting, mm-hmm. and I think I'm. I mean, like, not that it matters what I'm okay with for anyone but me. Um, but I'm. I think I'm also okay with anchor. I'm really cautious around primary. Yeah, I'm also cautious around primary because I, it creates this hierarchy that. And I think it's fair to have a hierarchy of obligation. Yes. I don't think it's fair to have a hierarchy of control. Mm. Yeah. And I think that's the distinction that you get people in relationships where they have a primary partner and that's because they say have kids with that person. So there are primary responsibilities to each other and to those children. Yeah. Which is like fair that they have a hierarchy of responsibilities and obligation. They have their kids. They have to look after their kids. Their kids come first. That's reasonable. Yeah. I think where I'm a little less 100% on board is when we move past obligations and we move into this person is my wife and the mother of my kids, therefore they get say in who I date or sleep with. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with that, but that is a very monogamous idea, and it's very much descended through the idea of social monogamy, even yeah. if you're not being sexually monogamous. It's very swingersy to have that notion that this this one true love... comes around control. Yeah, that yeah. comes around control specifically. It's when a third party has input, and more than just hey, here are my needs. I would like you to show up for me and meet these needs. But where that third person extends that to, I do not want you doing these things with other people. It gets into ownership of humans, which in many ways, marriage comes parceled with. Yeah, because of the historical context around marriage. Absolutely. And one of the like primary definitions of marriage 
is exclusivity. That is like one of the biggest, you know, before all others, etc. Mm-hmm. We were looking into non-monogamous marriage and I was like really disappointed with how intense the exclusivity is in the idea of marriage. It's almost like you really have to be willing to reinvent what you're doing to even consider something non-monogamous to be marriage. And I'm mm-hmm. cool with people doing that work and reinventing it. And I hope we take the term back. And it was literally the first or the second defining vow, like was exclusivity, monogamous sexual exclusivity. Mm. Yeah. When we were doing research. Cool. I like the idea that relationship anarchy does not prioritize. I think that's something I really like about relationship anarchy that it really is about making your own custom relationships and less about not having structure. Like some people in relationship anarchy are really anti-labels to the point where they're like, I just don't want to define anything. And I think that opens itself up to not setting good expectations. And also to not setting good to like, I think when we don't define things, sometimes we um, lose sight of what our our personal boundaries are. And that if you, like the biggest thing that I have learned, or one of the, I guess there's, I've learned a, learned so much in the last couple of years from all of the large feels, feelings, things, and messiness of being a human. Yeah. Um, and I think like boundaries and capacity are two things that I keep returning to. How do I understand? Yeah. My own boundaries, like, and whether they be hard or soft limits. Yeah. Uh, I really appreciated that insight, and then. Um, how do I acknowledge my capacity in any given moment and recognizing yeah. that that is going to fluctuate based on the external factors of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and like being a, a person who is not living in a silo out in the middle of nowhere that I interact with other people that I have family members that I have friends that I have different relationships that I care about mm-hmm. that will also have their own relationships going on and have their own needs and checks and balances. And how do I come back to this idea of like, how do I, know myself and how do I recognize my capacity Mm -hmm. yeah and self-awareness is a huge part of that in being able to give informed consent and being able to just know where you are having a map for you what does it look like for me when I am a fuck yes to this thing what does it look like for me when I feel coerced what does it look like for me when I'm getting depressed like having that map of oneself is really useful for having healthy relationships yeah I'm mindful of time I know that we are close to needing to wrap up Yep, we're definitely, we're getting there. So I'm wondering what, like, what is pressing that Mm -hmm. we really want to, like, pull into this before we Mm -hmm. log off and go away for now? I think we actually touched on everything that I wanted to touch on. Was there anything you wanted to add? Um, Bring me back to the initial question that we started with. The initial question was, um, essentially, how we've overcome scripts broken scripts and the advice that we would give to others to how they should break scripts. And I mean, I think step one is like becoming aware of the scripts that exist. Yeah. Naming the scripts that exist. Yeah. And then working towards curiosity. Like whenever mm-hmm. I'm able to sit in a curiosity, I'm a way better human. Yeah. Um, and like I can sit with things like anxiety and depression and like some of what might be considered the negative feels but if i can come back to this place of curiosity and mm-hmm. impermanence as well oh yeah um oh my god Imperten- impermanence is its own podcast like impermanence being huge when we think about the scripts that exist and this idea of you're going to fall in love with one person and then you're going to get married and you're going to spend the rest of your life with them um and so being like okay 
I don't like I think about my mom and how when she was pregnant with me like and that was more than 30 years ago now like did she ever even know that like because I grew up in Montreal so like did she ever know that she was going to move across the country to another province like probably not like and and this idea of like we we don't have things figured out we don't know where life is going and that's okay like we can have aspirations we can have goals we can aim for certain things but you really never know what life is going to throw you and very true and how do we navigate relationships through all of that yes that is an excellent point to wrap up on thank you so much oz for your time and your insight and your wonderful company and conversation thank you so much for having me and the delicious coffee and just hanging out awesome great and i guess that wraps up our session the background music was Four Way by William Ross Chernoff's Nomads, published through Creative Commons. I hope you've enjoyed Intimate Interactions. Thank you to all of my patrons for their generous support in making this possible. If you'd like to support more content like this and get early access to upcoming shows as well as other goodies, go to patreon.com slash victorsalmon and pledge. Thanks for your time and talk to you soon. <laughs>